Welcome to the Real Life Show Living with a Chronic Illness. We are your hosts, Cassie and Chelsea. I'm Cassie, a single mom living with a chronic illness who is extremely passionate about living a full and happy life. And I'm Chelsea, a mindset coach that has a passion for helping people learn to put themselves first and be the best version of themselves each and every day. We came together to create Spoonies Unite, an uplifting community that offers resources, guidance, and support so you can live your best life while giving you the space to be yourself, be heard, and feel understood. We hope that by providing education from experts, we help Spoonies and their loved ones thrive. This show is not only for those who live with a chronic illness, but their friends, family, spouses, and just anyone else existing on the earth. Our goal is to normalizing having a chronic illness by sharing the real stories with real people and show the world how relatable those everyday struggles can be. There's a little something in here for everyone. And of course, thank you to our patrons for your continued support making this possible. If you love our show and want to get some extra goodies, go to patreon.com slash the real spoonies unite. Enjoy the show. Today's interview is with Brittany Roman Green, who is a virtual private practice registered dietitian, nutritionist, certified personal trainer, and member of the Northern California Chapter Medical Advisory Committee, the CMAC, and CMAC National Task Force for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Brittany is also the leader of the Registered Dietitians in IBD Practice Group for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She specializes in helping people with gastrointestinal conditions such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis get into symptom remission, maximize their energy, and gain a better relationship with food so that they can finally live their life instead of living under the constraints of their disease. We had a really great time talking to Brittany. Her energy is just so amazing. She is such a sweetheart, and she does an amazing job of not just looking at food, but also looking at the other aspects of people's lives, stress, exercise, those other things that can impact the severity of your symptoms. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with her. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of The Real Life Show, Living with a Chronic Illness. Cassie and I are joined today with Brittany Roman Green. Hi, Brittany. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Yay, we're so excited. Mm -hmm. So... Brittany, you are an RD, you struggle with IBD, you have so much fun information to share with us today. We're so excited. Do you want to start off by letting our listeners know a little bit about who you are, what you've been through in your life, and kind of what's brought you to where you are today? Sure. Um, so I, I guess, sorry, should I do like a like a little quick bio of what I do now? We will, if you want to, but we will, like the bio you sent us, will, which we probably should have told you this earlier. I know. This is why I needed to not start the introduction, Chelsea. This is, this is why, because Chelsea always goes in and says all this stuff and I fucked it up. (laughs) Um, We'll have that bio you sent us. We will have read it. Um, the way our episodes kind of oh, flow is okay. Gotcha. We have so our sorry. little like intro. You're good. We have a little <laughs> intro <guessed> music, <laughs> and then we got the bio, and then okay. Cassie and I kind of give like a little like deus teasers of like okay. yeah. experience talking to you, so then people listen to the entire episode. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So people that. will sorry, know no, that, no. but don't be sorry. <laughs> no, okay. But feel free, like, because I know, like, if if I do podcast interviews and someone has my bio, I still kind of like give the really like short like I do this. 
like the one sentence thing. So that's totally fine. Mm. But yeah, but here we go. Who, yeah. who are you? Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so I was, um, diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, um, in high school, but I actually started having symptoms as like a change in my bowel movements as early as the end of elementary school. And I just like, oh wow, guess I thought like, <laughs> you know, urgent <laughs> trips to the bathroom and, and diarrhea multiple times a day was normal or something. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to um, tell what's normal when you're so young. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, the change happened gradually too. Um, initially I started having like large bowel movements that were like, like almost like tree trunks, like Dang. hard to pass. And then it turned from somewhere, it turned into like loose stools. So, um, but I also have IBS and I also have another autoimmune condition called primary sclerosing cholangitis, um, which is I've actually- I've never heard of that. I was just thinking, really, the same thing. I was like, I haven't heard of it's that actually one. A a pheno, it's actually a phenotype of IBD. It's a very rare one. It's a rare medical condition, but- Okay, wait, will you say it again? Yeah, primary sclerosing cholangitis. Okay. Um, but big, basically it's a- autoimmune condition where there's inflammation in the bile ducts between, you know, the liver and the gallbladder. And what that can do over time is it causes them to become more narrow and harden. And then it can slowly affect the liver and then cause liver failure at one point. And you may need, um, you know, a liver transplant or, um, you know, and it puts me at significantly high risk for bile duct cancer as well as colon cancer. So dang, but I'm fine now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you were like, it's all good y'all. It's fine. Yeah. No one panic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the initial diagnosis of the PSC was, I was just diagnosed with that one a few years ago. So that was definitely a harder one to kind of, um, Yeah accept and mm. um but you know because there's just so much it's so rare but mm-hmm. with time and realizing that it hasn't progressed it just kind of helped you realize like help me focus on the moment living in the moment as opposed to worrying about my future health and i think yeah. that's something that like anyone with ibd or any chronic condition can definitely relate to you know mm-hmm. um, absolutely but at the time of my UC diagnosis, I mean, I was really, really sick. I was hospitalized. I was 20 pounds underweight, was running to the bathroom 15, 20 times a day, blood in all my stools, like just, you know, everything was diarrhea. It was pain. It was, um, you know, a complete exhaustion. It's so exhausting mm-hmm. when I was you are sick just in all the time. Mm-hmm. I kept because my immune system was so low from the flare. I was getting sick with something every few weeks. Um, and yeah, so that was kind of like where I started. And yeah, after a few, a bunch of tests, a bunch of specialist doctors, they, someone was finally like, let's do a colonoscopy on her. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, then I was finally diagnosed with UC and, um, yeah, from there, I tried a bunch of different medications, had side effects to like pretty much everything until I found one that worked for me. And then, um, you know. Do you so- mind sharing which one worked for you? 
Yeah. Initially it was colazole. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then I actually had switched to Lialda and then I went back to colazole and then I'm back on Lialda, Mm -hmm. um, and have been on that for years. So, um, yeah, but I've, you know, in high school, I basically ate a pretty, not a great diet. And I took a chef's class, which is pretty cool that my high school even offered that. That's so fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But um, they actually had a nutrition component of it, which I loved. I thought it was so interesting. And um, so I think between that and the fact that I realized that like certain foods were triggering my symptoms, like my dad's delicious, but spicy chili. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, both of those things kind of um, helped me decide that I wanted to become a registered dietitian. And so while I was in, yeah. So while I was in school in college, I learned more about nutrition and realized like, oh, wow, I really need to change my diet and uh, made a bunch of changes. You know, I'm still to this day, I think it's like a, a process that you always need to, or I always focus on, um, Mm -hmm. always things that you can always ways that you can improve and be healthier and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I made a lot of changes in those four years of college. Um, and which is like one of the hardest times to make like nutritional changes. One would think, you know, being a college student. And so that's pretty cool. You know, that you made those changes and learned so much and what a gift that you kind of knew what you wanted to do from a class in high school. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I actually had like, I figured I was going to change my major, but I ended up loving it. So I actually shadowed a, as like a volunteer, I was a volunteer in a hospital in between uh, high school and college. And yeah, I shadowed a dietitian and it, and it was like, I was like, Oh, this is amazing. Which is funny because I would never want to be a dietitian in a hospital again, but um, at the time that was enough to help me get hooked. Oh, that's cool. So fun. And so um, you obviously must have found that everything you were learning with the nutrition and then like you said, like, oh, I need to make a change with my diet. You must have started making those changes for yourself. Is that right? And then you started noticing differences too. Yeah, definitely. Um, The changes have, I mean, I know that, so I, because I have also have IBS, which a lot of people with IBD have on, in addition to, um, their IBD diagnosis, I have food intolerances. And so there's certain fruits and vegetables that, um, are going to trigger symptoms cause I'm sensitive to them. Mm-hmm. And so finding those and, and really figuring out all my trigger foods has been, I mean, life-changing also adding more variety into my diet because you know I ate a very uh, delicious diet in high school (laughs) but I did not eat a wide variety and so Mm -hmm. I think that I'm not saying that caused my flare or caused anything but it definitely didn't help me feel great whereas Mm -hmm. now I think that my diet and lifestyle helped me to feel as best as I possibly can yeah so okay so I'm really interested because especially with you saying, um, that you are diagnosed with IBS in addition to IBD and how many of us are diagnosed with both. Um, so I really appreciate that because I would, I was also diagnosed with IBS in addition to IBD. And I have to admit being totally honest on the real life show that I was in the doctor's office and I was like, 
fuck that. Don't be trying to take away my validation of my Crohn symptoms, you know? And I was like, this is not IBS. This is IBD, you know? And I, <laughs> I like felt that where I was like, don't dismiss me with IBS. Like I have Crohn's it's flaring. I'm fucked up. And, um, so, but now with you, with you saying it, I'm like super receptive, like, oh yeah, you know, we do all struggle with it. And for all of those out there that have IBS, by the way, this is totally not taking away from any of your experiences. My sister-in-law has IBS and it can be, I have witnessed, you know, the potential shitting of the pants. So I get how difficult that is. Um, I just, at the time was trying to be heard for like my medication changes, et cetera. So what, um, do you feel like, like you said, you kind of found your trigger foods and et cetera. Do you feel like that really helped to treat the IBS side of all of the issues that you were having then? Absolutely. Okay. Um, that's 100% because it, with IBS, it's all about, or one of the factors is finding your food triggers. Cause there's, there's triggers in your diet that you're sensitive to. And so when you find those, in addition to lifestyle factors that can definitely um, help reduce your symptoms like stress management, you know, exercise, getting a good night's sleep, all that stuff can help as well. But um, diet is a big part of that. And yeah, you're right. It can be like debilitating symptoms. And oftentimes a lot of patients with IBD don't know, like, you know, I ask them, are you in a flare? And they have no idea because sometimes people are people are misled to thinking that, um, that symptoms mean you have disease, your disease is active when that is not necessarily the case. You can have your symptoms could be from a disease flare up from the inflammation, but it could also, or instead of be from food intolerances. Mm -hmm. Or stress. Yeah. Cause that's really interesting too, because, um, like they kind of say, you know, that like food doesn't really matter for your IBD. Like they're like, you know, you need medication, food and nutrition doesn't matter. It's not going to make a difference. And I've heard that from several doctors and I'm like, what the F, you know, it's your digestive organ that has disease. Like food has to be a contributing factor to helping that situation. But it's funny because I have not heard of any doctors like saying that, food doesn't help IBS. People always say you need to change your diet if you have IBS. So that's kind of interesting that it's like, yeah, maybe they are prescribing a medication to treat your IBD, but then you need to manage your symptoms of your IBS with diet and nutrition. Um, so this is kind of the first time that I'm like thinking, oh my God, yeah, what if we approach it this way? You know, that's really interesting. Um, one thing and, I'm going to ask, because this might be just because I haven't lived it myself, but for maybe anyone listening, Brittany and maybe Cassie, you can kind of add in a little bit, but can you guys go in a little bit more in depth of the difference between IBD and IBS? Ooh, you go, Brittany. <laughs> I think that you both can kind of give a good definition because we do people that listen that don't know that stuff. And yeah. I don't think I have the best understanding of it myself, but that could be kind of good to help give some verbiage for people to use to describe, okay, well, I have IBS and IBD, but this is how they're the same and this is how they're different. That's a good question. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the simplest way, I'm not a physician, so they would probably be the best one to answer this question. But um, what I can say in the simplest way is with IBD, there's some sort of underlying inflammation um, 
Whereas with IBS, there is not. Mm-hmm. And so and my like simplicity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and so also like irritable bowel disease versus irritable bowel syndrome yeah. too is what they all stand for. Okay. Continue. <laughs> Inflammatory bowel disease. Thank you. What did versus- I say? I think you mix them up a little bit. So irritable bowel syndrome. Oh shit. Thank you. That's what I wanted to say. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to say inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome. So thank you for fixing me. Totally. I made like that mistake out before my fuck up there. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So say that again. Use. Okay. Repeat that inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> now our listeners know. <laughs> yeah. And one way to like, usually a doctor will diagnose. I mean, obviously again, I'm not a doctor, but um, my understanding is that the doctor would either do a fecal test to assess whether they have inflammation or not. So if you've ever heard of like fecal calprotectin level, that's one that can assess like, do you have IBS? Well, it can say like, do you have IBD? And then an endoscopy or colonoscopy would be the other way that they would um, make sure that there's no underlying inflammation. And checking like some of those inflammatory blood markers too, like the C-reactive protein and stuff like that too. I know that that's part of what got them to test me with a colonoscopy. They did the fecal test, they did a blood test, they saw inflammatory markers, did the colonoscopy, and then diagnosed me with a severe Crohn's disease. Yeah. But that's also really interesting, like you said, about the difference of determining if you're in a flare or just experiencing symptoms. Because like, for example, I, I don't go symptom free like ever. (laughs) Um, And so sometimes it'll get worse than others, of course. Um, Part of what helps, I think, for me to determine if it's a Crohn's flare is I'll also have a lot of joint pain with my disease and such. But for example, like in January, I mean, I was like going to the bathroom, pooping 10 times plus a day, so exhausted, super, you know, yeah, loose stools, like just miserable. And I had a colonoscopy and my colonoscopy actually looked pretty good. Um, It wasn't disease free, but because they still saw inflammation in the small bowel, but it was like the best of all of my colonoscopies yet. Um, And so, for example, they wanted to keep me on the medication that I'm on right now, which is Stellara. And so this is really interesting, this conversation, even just this far to me, because I'm like, well, yeah, what if the Stellara is treating my IBD, inflammatory bowel disease? (laughs) And what if I could be making a more proactive... um, taking more proactive action to try and treat the IBS side. So I'm very intrigued by your different differentiate differentiation of it. <laughs> um, okay. So with the foods, continue a little bit on your story. Like you started playing with some trigger, finding out what your triggers, trigger foods are. Mm-hmm. And then um, like you said, adding in variety of your diet. And so how long, I mean, this might be like a really loaded question, but how long did it take till you were feeling some improvement in your symptoms? Well, I think the thing is I, I made these changes, like I improved the overall nutritional quality of my diet and, you know, found some better alternatives, like over the span of 
I mean, really, even to this day. So I think, you know, over the span of 10 years, but mm-hmm. certainly like I, I help some of my clients in like, you know, three months find their trigger foods or, you know, whatever it is. And um, usually people can start, well, I don't want to you know, obviously guarantee anything, but yeah. like some people can start seeing results faster than others. Some people within a week of making mm-hmm. changes, see a pretty substantial change. It just depends on the person and their, their trigger foods and where they are. Mm-hmm. So we had talked a little bit, bit before the show about, you know, like you said, you had a lot of bowel movements in a day and really loose and it's draining. It's just so exhausting. And I feel like sometimes that will be enough that it takes away like all my spoons for the day, you know? And, um, my sister-in-law, like I said, she has IBS and she would be able to relate because she's had moments like that. And it's just, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to stay hydrated. And then it's like, you want to eat. Cause you're like, maybe it'll help if I eat, but then you're like, I don't even want to put anything else into my body because I don't want anything to have to come out of my body. I mean, I've been in that place more than I could count. So, did you find, um, I, I'm curious what you maybe found for your foods or lifestyle that helped you go from those like 10 plus bowel movements a day down to a more normal two to three, what sort of, I don't know, was there anything magic that happened there or was it like <laughs> a combination of things? Was it over a lot of time? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that my medication helped as, you know, definitely part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, over the past few years, um, well, it's actually interesting because my last flare up was, I believe, triggered from the stress from planning my wedding as I planned it like last minute for some reason. Um, but interestingly, right after my wedding, I, and so that was kind of like an aha moment for me because I realized like, oh, I'm like doing all these other things for my health, but I'm like completely neglecting mental health. And so that was kind of the aha moment for help me start implementing a daily stress management activity. And so I realized, you know, before that I was like, yeah, exercise helps me, but it's like, it makes me feel good, but it's not building stress resilience for me. So um, that's where I learned like how important that has been. And that has been really helpful for me in in reducing symptoms overall. Um, But on top of that, um, certainly, uh, you know, wait, I'm sorry. What else did you ask? No, you're answering it. Um, <laughs> what is, oh, what has changed? Me? Sorry, go ahead. I was like, what is your like daily stress management kind of practice? Like, what do you do for that? So I meditate before bed or do some sort of like um, diaphragmatic breathing, which is like basically focusing on your breath. Oh my God, Chelsea, breaths. I feel like you starting this breath work the timing of it. Okay. So Chelsea just started this like breathwork course and this is like our third podcast interview that people are talking about breath and the change it made. And so Chelsea, I totally feel like this was the missing element for you. And these are signs. (laughs) I I struggle with, um, anxiety and stress 
which is kind of funny because I also teach people how to help me. I have, because I've been stressed so much in my life, I have lots of good tricks, but there is, I've kind of felt like I I got to a point where it's like not getting any better on my own. And so I was like, Oh, I'll try breath work. And so, yeah, the fact that like it it has come up in the past couple interviews that we've been doing, I guess now we have to do an episode on breath work, Cassie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know. Like, for me, it's really, and also I think I've like, especially in the past few years, I really tuned into my body, trying to listen to my body even more than I ever have. So part of that is listening to the cues, the stress cues it gives when it's like, it's like an SOS. You, you just had a nightmare last night. That's probably a sign that you're a little stressed and it's taking it into your, cause you know, during the day, I'm like, yeah, I can handle stress. I got this, you know, but that doesn't mean that it's not being internalized in my and affecting my disease. So that's why I have to do something to actively, you know, every night build up some stress resilience and also listen to my cute, you know, body cues of like, sometimes I get really tight in my shoulders or neck. That's also a signal to me myself that like, I need to stop working 12 hours Mm -hmm. or 14 hours a day and like give myself a little more time to relax and unwind. And it makes a huge difference. Gosh, that's so inspiring. I mean, especially with you saying that you got more in tune with your body, even, even on a deeper level, because um, I know that Chelsea and I have talked with people also on the, on this podcast and in person and ourselves um, that sometimes when you have a chronic illness, like you don't want to be in tune with your body. It's like Mm -hmm. hard to do it. And that having to connect on that level is like really hard. And I know that I, I kind of go in and out, like there's some ways that I'm super in tune with my body and I know what's going on, but I'm actually similar with you where I'm really good in high stress situations. Um, but then the, the physical fallout, I still haven't like, fully acknowledged how that is truly affecting me. Like, I'll be like, I'm great at handling this. And then it's like the next week that my, when, when things calm down or that stress is done, that then my body is like, okay, yeah, no, you didn't handle that well. And now I'm really sick and all this stuff. And so only in recent months, actually during the coronavirus, like quarantining and actually really having that time at home and being able to be more in tune, have I begun to realize that. So meditation and breath work is huge. And that diaphragmatic breathing that really helps with the, isn't it the vagus, vagus nerve, vagal, vagus, vagal, vagus, vagus nerve. Vagus. Yeah. 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 Um, because my physical therapist was talking about that. And in fact, when I would talk to her about like having frequent bathroom moments and like rectal spasming is a big one of my symptoms. And she was like, why don't you give it a try doing that vagus nerve diaphragmatic breathing see if it can help relax it and showed me how it's all connected. And it did make a little difference. So yeah, maybe I should be doing more to give it a chance to make a bigger difference. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have a client who I just finished working with and she has a pouch. She's had one for about two years and she will you tell to... people what a J pouch is. They may not or any kind of pouch, just like Chelsea said, maybe some of our listeners don't know. Uh, so it's, I guess I'm not really sure how to like fully describe it, but I know that they like connect (laughs) your intestines into like a J like, um, 
It's like a version of an ostomy bag. I don't know because there's when you get like an ostomy and there's various different ways, like you said, that can be that you have your ostomy bag, like J pouch, stoma is the part that goes into the bag. I think I don't have one either. The opening. Right. So basically for the listeners who don't know, it's yes, there is a part of your colon that has been surgically adjusted and your pouch takes most of your waste. So I believe you usually um, like her, usually in that situation with a J pouch, like your um, colon is completely removed, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it is mostly completely removed, like you said too. Cause then there's like, I've heard of what they call like the Barbie butt surgery where they take out your rectum and everything too. So there's definitely like variations of intensity with that. So, so you have a client who has a pouch. Yes. And, um, she used to, you know, when we first started working together, she was going to the bathroom still multiple times a way to multiple times a day to change her bag. And even actually throughout the night, like twice, usually once or twice and simply focusing on breath work and relaxing her body at night, she was able to she's now able to make it through the night without going to the bathroom. Wow. Incredible. So initially it was like almost out of a habit that she would frequently get up to go to the bathroom. Um, and also in, in her bed, she would have these moments of like, Oh, well, do I have to go to the bathroom? I don't want to have to have an accident. I'll just go. And so it was a lot of this, like, you know, this mind body reaction where like, when you start thinking about having to go to the bathroom or worrying about having to go to the bathroom and a lot of, even if you don't have a pouch, you know, a lot of patients with IBD have the same kind of anxiety in those types of situations. This is especially where the breath work and stress management meditation can really play a huge role in reducing the symptoms because of those types of reactions. Gosh, that's fascinating. That's That's super interesting. Now I'm like wanting to try that in the morning because, um, you're right that, because I even remember, uh, I started um, one of my GI doctors prescribed me dicyclamine. Dicyclamine is a drug that it essentially suppresses the nervous system in your gut. It's a gut antispasmatic is like the name of this medication or like the, the, the purpose of it. And so I, again, I have a lot of this rectal spasming, but also I have so much chronic pain in my abdomen. And the doctor was saying like, sometimes those nerves and the neuro, like the pathways and the receptors, because they have had trauma for so long, they think they have trauma or pain or, or are experiencing that when actually they're not. And that was like really interesting to have him explain it that way. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes I take that, which is, yeah, it essentially suppresses like the nervous system in the gut. And so if you could get your breath to help with that, because that is really interesting. Like you said, it's almost like, um, like phantom limb, in a sense of if you like are so used to having to go to the bathroom all the time and maybe in reality you realistically don't actually have to go but your body and your nervous system is like no i do no i do or you don't want to have an accident or you have anxiety about going that's like super interesting i never quite thought of it that way 
It's I'm really, having so many epiphanies right now. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, and it's, I'm, I say this, but I like, I know it's not, and it's not like a, oh, well now everything has changed. It's like a slow mm-hmm. process, just like anything else where you need to stick with it, but mm-hmm. you can see pretty amazing results from, from that alone for sure. Gosh, that's so awesome. That's so it's awesome. So, it's so interesting to see how stress can just impact our body in such a physical way, even though it's a mental experience, it's just a physical manifestation all the time. So interesting. I'm going to take your attention away from our show for just one moment to tell you more about our Patreon. Now we absolutely love our patrons. And I know that you hear us talk about this at the beginning and the end of each of our episodes, but I wanted to take a moment to tell you more about what you actually get when you become a patron of the real life show. Cassie and I put extra content out for all of our patrons. You get to see the live videos of Cassie and I talking and interviewing with our guests. As soon as we record those episodes, that video gets put up for our patrons to see. So you get to get content before everyone else. No longer do you have to wait for weeks or maybe even months to talk, to listen to our next guest or Cassie and I talking about another topic. You get to watch it whenever you want through our patron. We also have other benefits as in bonus episodes that you get to vote on, discounts on our merch, and other just fun stuff. So if you are loving this show and you want a little extra goodies, head on over to patreon.com slash the real spoonies unite to pick which level of support you would love to help us with. Brittany, can, since you talked a lot about like trigger foods, finding trigger foods, is there a process that you recommend to people that are trying to maybe figure out, oh, does this food trigger me? Does it not? Because I know like there's some foods that I know don't make me feel the best, but I'm sure that there's some out there that just make just like that everyone kind of experienced like a little bit of like, ah, oh, it's not the best food for me. So how, how do you kind of recommend people going about figuring out, okay, this is, this is the trigger food and this is kind of what it leads to? So I think personally, I think it's really hard to find this stuff on your own if you're not trained in it, to be completely honest. Um, That's really fair. So I would, I would recommend mainly because food intolerances can be both time and dose dependent. So you could eat like, let's say a bite of an apple today and have an immediate reaction, or it could take three days for your symptom to manifest. You could also eat a bite of an apple and be totally fine, symptom-free, but if you eat the whole apple, have symptoms for days. So partly because of that, it makes it like, you know, it's interesting because when I was first diagnosed, I'll never forget that my gastroenterologist told me, oh, you know, every, everyone always says, oh, do write down all the foods that you're eating, do a food diary to find your food triggers. I was like, okay, I'll do that. And I, I wrote it out. I, you know, I wrote everything I ate for a week, brought it into the next appointment. And I was like, I did it. I, (laughs) I wrote out all my food and he was like, great, keep doing it and see if you find anything. And I was like, what? Like, no, that's not helpful. But I did the work. You're supposed (laughs) to tell me what, what what it means, (laughs) which frankly he should have at that point been like, no, let me ref, you know, refer you to a dietitian who's trained in this because he's probably he probably wasn't even trained in it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think 
that because of that, I don't know, maybe other people are more um, well-versed than I was, which could be very possible. Um, but I know I didn't have any idea what to look for. And certainly there's some of those common ones that probably you already know about, but like, you know, if something's really spicy, you might have an immediate reaction to stuff like that. If it's a really fatty or greasy meal, a lot of added sugars. But the thing is with sometimes there's, because of that dose to time reaction, there could be other trigger foods that you just don't know about because of that. So it's really hard to find all of your trigger foods unless you truthfully get like an expert. So I know there's a bunch of food sensitivity testing out there. None of them have been validated by research studies. So basically none of those tests have been validated to see if, you know, for their reliability and their accuracy. So we don't know if, if you do the same test today and next week, if you'll get the same results. We also don't know if those results mean anything. Interesting. So when clients mm -hmm. come to me with like, hey, I have these test results from this sensitivity test. I'm like, you don't even have to bring them in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, Cause it's okay. not, cause they'll, they'll always say like, oh yeah, it basically, it, I also just, I'm very upset with all those sensitivity tests because they're having you do all these sense, you know, these testings. And then what happens is I get a ton of clients who are eating five or 10 different foods every single day. And you know, it's just such a limited diet. And because of all these sensitivities that they have, that they actually don't have. So it's something I'm, if you can tell, very angry about because it just, it makes, there's already so much conflicting information about mm -hmm. nutrition and IBD. And so when, when someone is like trying to make money off of that, um, it just kind of upsets me, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, that's like, again, fascinating. I'm sitting here like, wow. Um, because like I've done food sensitivity stuff and I did the most recent one I did was biome, which is like stool sample food sensitivity to mm -hmm. check your gut microbiome. And there was a couple things on there that it was like, you have a sensitivity to that. And I was like, yeah, I do. I just was ignoring it. You know, like I could tell like tomatoes don't really are not the best for me. Um, and so I was like, okay, validated taking that out. But you're right that, um, Often, and I'm sure this has to be true for many chronic illnesses beyond just IBD, like RA and stuff, you end up eating like five to 10 foods and that's like it. Like I know that I'm in that rut right now and I'm super like unmotivated to cook food. I feel very like lack of joy when it comes to food, mm -hmm. but I was raised in an environment where we ate like rainbows on our plates and like all the different types of food. I I'm really grateful that I was raised with such, um, cause I don't think that was the norm. My mom was definitely like a hippie for a while. And she would <laughs> like, she literally would like with the plate of food, she'd be like, Oh, that needs, you know, a little bit of this color. And doesn't that look, doesn't that just make the salad pop when you add this coloring to it, you know? And I'd be like, Oh yeah, it does. So we were not only introduced to a giant variety of foods and also like the different colors of foods, but then also taught to appreciate what you're eating and enjoy it and savor it and flavor it and all the great things that they say that you should do with food. Um, and I'm not doing like any of it anymore. Like these days, 
Um, except for maybe like when I'm like this chocolate chip cookie and this cake is the bomb, you know, I'm going to enjoy every <laughs> bite of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're right. Like we do so often end up being afraid to eat so much. And then there is so much like restriction too that we eat like five to 10 things. So do you, are you able to eat like a lot of vegetables? I am. So yeah, so I am, but I think again, it was like a slow process. You have to, and I, I believe that every person with, unless I've come across someone, unless you just recently, if you have like toxic megacolon or, you know, if you see in your, but you're probably about to get um, surgery at that point, or if you, you know, yeah, there's pretty much not a lot of times where you can't have any vegetables. I can't think of any time, but um, it's a matter of finding the vegetables that you can tolerate, that you don't have any sensitivities to, and also making, making them easier to digest. So for instance, instead of like, you know, one vegetable group that works well with most people with IBD is like basically any squash, mm-hmm. butternut squash, spaghetti squash, acorn squash, zucchini, uh, yellow squash, and you know, that's a bunch of foods right there um, that you can tolerate. Um, and they're, you know, as long as your, your vegetables are cooked well and you don't have any of that tough skin on because insoluble fiber, which is um, prevalent in those tough skins, is hard to break down for really anyone, even healthy people, uh, let alone people with in a flare, which it could trigger worsening of IBD symptoms, like running to the bathroom or anything like Mm -hmm. that. So, but the interesting thing about insoluble fiber is that if you, I actually just wrote a paper for dietitians on this, but if you break down the fiber, the insoluble fiber into a smaller particle size, it's much easier to tolerate. So it's actually, and there's actually no research, there's minimal research studies that support a low fiber diet in IBD patients. Oh, really? That's very, yeah, it's actually quite interesting. There was just 2020 guidelines published in, um, I believe, the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. But basically, they say, you know, it's, it's all about, like, restricting insoluble fiber in, like, in certain population groups in IBD. So, if you recently, if you recently had like a stricture, if you've ever had a history of a blockage, those are cases that maybe you would need to restrict insoluble fiber. There's still not a lot of research on that to support it. But, um, and again, in my experience, I can, I've helped clients work from eating one, you know, for instance that, well, she didn't. Yeah. So, you know, I've had clients who work from like eating one or no fruits or vegetables up to five plus servings of fruits and vegetables a day. So it's a matter of how slow you do it. It's a matter of finding the right, um, you know, breaking down the insoluble fiber, whether that means to, um, yeah, cook it heavily, blend it, puree it, juice it, you know, um, anything like that um, will help increase the tolerability of fruits and vegetables. So it's not a matter, like, to, in my opinion, fruits and vegetables provide so many vitamins, nutrients. We should be consuming these just as often as 
the general population. It's just a matter of finding the right ways to tolerate them and finding the ones that work for you. Um, yeah, the, the 2020 guidelines basically said, unless you have a stricture blockage, um, if you had recent surgery, and if you have toxic megacolon, in those cases, you may need to restrict insoluble fiber for everyone else. Um, pretty much you can continue eating it. Um, or, you know, if you want to slow, like in any situation, even with healthy people, you'd want to slowly increase it in your diet rather than going from no fiber to, you know, eating nuts all day, <laughs> that would cause an increase of trips to the bathroom for a healthy person. So yeah. it's also going to do the same for people with IBD. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This was like gold. Everything that you just said just now, this was totally like what I was hoping we could get into some on the episode too, especially the talks about fiber, because like I was put on a low fiber diet for like a freaking year and a half after I had a small bowel obstruction. And then I was like scared to eat fiber after that. I was on AIP for two and a half years before that, which is the autoimmune protocol. And they like told me in the hospital, they're like, well, you were eating too many vegetables. Your gut can't digest it. And so basically like, because you were eating so much salad, like you have a small bowel obstruction. And I was like, you're wrong. That can't be the case. Vegetables are good for you. You people are insane. This is nuts. And then after having an NG tube up my nose for like a week, then I was like, okay, now I'm afraid to eat salads. But then I have also like read some articles from like Healthline or Mind Body Green and stuff that talk about like more fiber the right way healing IBD. Um, and so this is like super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word healing IBD, mm -hmm. but certainly like, and, and I think for you in that case, you had just had like surgery, you know, I don't, or I'm sorry, you just had a blockage. So mm -hmm. you, you know, it, I was in that. Weird, I would not recommend yeah. going right into salads and, mm -hmm. and certainly like salads are high in insoluble fiber. So doing a cooked salad would be much better for you. And um, is it right vegetables. that like, is it correct that, um, steaming vegetables is one of the best ways to keep the nutrition? Maybe that's too much of a blanket it question is. or. Yeah, it, it is a great way of maintaining the vitamins and minerals. I really have the mindset of like, I find that gross. I don't know if other people do, <laughs> but like, if you're not going to eat the vegetables because you don't like them steamed, then like find another way. I love yeah. roasting pretty much all my vegetables because I have the biggest sweet tooth ever. So I like getting them a little caramelized and so that they're even oh, sweeter when I taste them. So I think it's really about, it's like, okay, I'm losing a little bit of vitamins and minerals, but if I'm consuming 10, 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day, you know what? I'm okay to lose a little bit of that if it means yeah. I'm eating more of it, you know? Well, that's so good I to think, know too. Mm -hmm. I think it's really finding what works best for the individual mm -hmm. situations. But back to what you had said about like the fiber, um, yeah, fiber and IBD is actually, there's a research study that um, in Crohn's disease patients who did not have a history of complications, so they didn't have strictures or blockages, any of that kind of stuff, they didn't have surgeries. In those patients, actually, there's a research study that suggests they, those who consumed the least amount of fiber were the most likely to flare within a six-month time frame. So 
actually in that population group, they're suggested, it's recommended for them to increase their intake of fiber. How interesting. <laughs> okay, cool. Okay. Um, yeah, that's really interesting because when I did read some of those articles, there was this part of me that, because I actually love vegetables. Like I said, how I grew up, I like miss food. And, um, but there's this like food fear that kind of goes along with some of that mm -hmm. stuff too. And so this is, when I read that article, there was this little part of me that was like, Ooh, maybe I can eat all these foods that I love so much, you know? Um, and so I have a client also who has, um, gastroparesis and I think she has IBS and POTS, Chelsea, you know her too, um, and EDS and, um, her doctor in, at Mayo said that like, the best vegetables to tolerate the, uh, the best way to tolerate or the easiest way to tolerate vegetables is canned vegetables because they have already been processed in a sense that they're more easily digested. Is that, do you ever have people like starting with canned vegetables? Cause to me, I'm like, they're not even nutritious at this point, but that might not be true. You know? Um, you know, the, I personally like to try to have everyone try to eat more whole foods rather than mm -hmm. canned or, or processed. Um, there's, you know, if they're sensitive to like, I'm just going to give an example of like, if they're sensitive to certain types of fibers and sugars um, in peas and they're doing canned pea, canned peas, if you drain and rinse the peas multiple times, you actually make it easier to digest that because you're, you're washing away the, um, that water soluble component that can potentially be triggering symptoms, but that's not, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like for most, I would, I would never recommend that as my mm -hmm. first line. In fact, yeah, I found it kind of like, interesting. Yeah. I try to go with like the whole foods that are best tolerated and yeah. Yeah. That's especially you talking about the squash thing. Like that's mm -hmm. great to know, you know, like you said, that's, there's a bunch of different squashes. And when she did tell me that I, I did find that interesting where I was like, man, you know, it makes sense because they are more processed and one generally, like even when you get given the Crohn's and colitis, like pamphlets with your diagnosis and they're like, eat donuts because they're easy to digest, <laughs> you know, white bread, it's easy to digest, canned vegetables. Yeah. And it was devastating because I was like, okay, but I'm not giving my body nutrients. And then you have chronic fatigue and joint pain and probably like blood sugar issues. And it's like, well, yeah, I'm not being able to like give myself whole foods, real foods. And, um, again, I think that this conversation, although it has mostly stemmed around IBD people, it's true for many autoimmune disorders because it may not be that you're like running to the bathroom 10, 10 times a day, but you might have crippling joint pain, like with rheumatoid arthritis or terrible chronic fatigue or with endometriosis. There's all this like cramping or hormonal stuff. And then a lot of endometriosis patients too have, um, a lot of bowel issues. And so it is a conversation that hopefully everyone, you know, you can all benefit from whether you have IBD or not, I think. And Chelsea, I know that you've like nodded your head and been like, wow, this whole time too, with not having it. It was super interesting. Well, I think the biggest takeaway that I'm hearing from you, Brittany, is something that I think a lot of people 
need to embrace a little bit more. And I actually just happened to see, I can't remember whose Instagram story it was, but it, it's basically the concept of don't do everything at once, start slow and make small little changes mm-hmm. and see how that goes. And then keep making small little changes. Like we live in a society and this is where the Instagram story, I can't, I wish I could remember who it was from. Um, but they were just kind of talking about, we live in a society that we want instant gratification. We want our problems fixed yesterday. <laughs> we, we don't always want to go through the process of getting better. Like we, we would rather try something that is going to take 30 seconds of our time, but just maybe like we keep, we want to keep trying the 30 second quick fixes to see which one sticks instead of just being like, you know what, it's going to be a long process, but I know at the mm-hmm. end, I'm going to feel pretty dang good. Like how you said that you mean you've been going through this process for 10 years and it's still a constant yeah. process, but mm-hmm. I mean, isn't it, to me, it's better. Isn't it better to start small and make small little changes than Absolutely. just starting over? <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, um, I actually, um, I always tell this, this one, cause I have a lot of clients that like, you know, obviously patients, I understand it. Cause people, especially when they start a program, they're like, I want to make all the changes now. Like I want to see results when you're not, when you're feeling terrible all the time, you want those changes as soon as possible. But a story I like to remind them of is like the childhood story of the tortoise and the hare about how the, you know, they're racing to a finish line and the tor- the hare runs past him and sprints ahead, gets tired, decides to take a break, falls asleep. And in the meantime, the tortoise, who obviously had a much slower pace, ends up crossing the finish line first because he never stops. And I think it's so true. You know, the moral of that story is that small consistent steps are almost always more successful than taking drastic multiple changes at once and i think that's you know in a society where it's very diet focused i mean there's so many ibd diets that you could potentially do out there but to my in my understanding like they're all so restrictive and they're going to be drastically different than what you're doing already So when you go on one of these diets, it's so hard to maintain for the long haul because it's so restrictive. And if you feel restrictive with your diet, there's no way you're gonna be able to maintain that for the long haul. So you need to add more variety. You need to add more things into it. So it can be something like, you know, that you can maintain for the long haul, but you have to do it in a slow way. And I think that's where like getting the support of a coach, I know that you're a coach as well, like, you know, um, or a dietitian that specialized in this to help you through the process so that you can stay focused on it and, and mm-hmm. actually get to where you want to be, you know? Yeah. That's, I'm so glad that you said that it's the finding something that you can maintain seems to also be, um, a theme that with various people we've had discussions with in the medical field or in like nu- the nutritional field, like you're in, that does seem to be one of the big keys is finding something that you can actually maintain mm-hmm. and do because then you can stick with it and do it. Um, it's kind of like same thing with exercise too, like finding an exercise regime or movement regime that you're feel like you can stick with. is going to make it so you do it. And um, exactly. Yeah. This, I mean, this was such an informative hour. I'm so glad that we got to talk with you about all this stuff. I really feel like I had some huge aha moments, um, especially like kind of where I think where I'm at with my disease, my mindset, my health, like this was really interesting for me. And I'm sure 
all of our listeners are going to find it fascinating. So what can you tell people what you do with your website, your coaching, and then like how people can find you if they want to work with you or get more information and all of that good stuff. Yeah. So I, you know, I work with clients usually with Crohn's or colitis, um, and I help them find their trigger foods, get more energy, um, you know, help them gain weight or lose weight, depending on where they are with that, mm-hmm. regulate their bowel movements, um, slowly increase adding exercise into their diet and um, reduce stress and, and all of that. And, and probably most importantly, gain a better relationship with food. And, um, you know, I have more of a more programs rather than like, here's a session because just like anything else, it's like you need support and that's how people become successful in making changes. So I have programs, um, and you can, if you're interested in working with me, you can always reach out to me on Instagram. My handle is at Brittany B underscore the RD. Um, or my, you can go to my website, www.brittanyroman-green.com. It's a long one. <laughs> um, and then there's a contact form on that, that you can reach okay. out. Perfect. And we're going to put those in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Well, Brittany, thank you. thank you for spending time with us today. This has really been a great conversation. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have learned a lot. And I also just want to thank you for doing the work that you do because it is very much needed in our world. I think doctors and medical professionals and healthcare professionals do a really good job, but they unfortunately just don't get the education on nutrition and exercise. And it sounds like you were a really good person for people to go to, to get that expertise that they need. Cause you, you're right. Everyone's different. Everyone's gut is different. The way foods react with people will be completely different. And so having the accountability and a support of someone who actually knows what to look for. Um, and the fact that you've struggled with this yourself, like you, you get what people are going through and you can really help them in a way that's actually going to help them feel their best in the long term. So thank you for your time and thank you for what you do. No, thank you guys for inviting me and having me today. Um, and thank you for what you do in your, in the community as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please write us a review to help us reach more people like you. If you'd like to connect with Cassie and I, you can find us on Instagram at The Real Spoonies Unite. You can also join our private Facebook community, Spoonies Unite, or you can visit our website, therealspooniesunite.com, for all sorts of resources and to stay up to date with our current projects. And don't worry, you can find all of these links in the show notes below. Thank you to our wonderful Spoonie patrons for all your support, and you can become one too. That's right. All you have to do is go on over to patreon.com slash Unite, and you can get all sorts of extra goodies like videos of our episodes and more. Any support is greatly appreciated. It helps enable us to create more content for all of you, as well as make this podcast sound better and better. Thanks for listening. We can't wait to be back in your ears soon.